Hey, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the NFL Roadshow post most of week 11. We've still got one game left in primetime on Monday night, but 14 games that have already happened. And I'll tell you what, long story short, I am concerned about the Bills. I am not concerned about the Cowboys. I'm starting to think that the Patriots might go on a run. And I am not at all surprised that the AFC's one seed heading into yesterday lost to the AFC's last place team heading into yesterday. Tennessee is not that team right now. Without Derrick Henry, they are not that team. They're just not. And yes, they'd won two straight without Henry, but the offense has not been good, and that was bound to catch up with them. Last week, for instance, against the Saints, 264 total net yards. Their leading rusher had 30 yards. Their best offensive player, and it's no doubt it's A.J. Brown now, he had one catch. Those are concerning metrics. And the week before was even worse. Remember that game against the Rams? They had 194 net yards. They ran the ball 26 times and only ended up with 69 rushing yards. Tannehill threw for 143 yards in that game. They won because the defense played well and the Rams did not. Rams shot themselves in the foot all night long. 12 penalties for 115 yards. So I've heard the conversations about the Titans in the last couple of weeks being atop the AFC, one of the best teams in the AFC. And while they earned the right to be in that conversation, it felt pretty obvious to me that they weren't actually going to stay there. Barring the return of Derrick Henry, while they were still in the mix, that is. And that's the thing that actually made them interesting in a projecting for the playoff sort of way. They did have such a big lead both in the division and in the conference, that it felt like if they held on and they made it to the postseason and he was able to come back for the postseason, then we could talk about them as a team that could make a run. But I don't see it. And even though 538 gives them a 92% chance of winning their division, I'm not sure they're going to do that because the Colts are playing really good football. And though their schedule is pretty tough the rest of the way, they've got the Bucks, the Texans, the Patriots, the Cardinals, the Raiders, and the Jags. After yesterday's performance against the Bills, I'm not writing them off for any of those games because Jonathan Taylor is legit, though not going to win the MVP. All right, can we chill out on that conversation? If we, were, if we weren't going to give it to Derrick Henry, we're not going to give it to Taylor. With a great offensive line and a quarterback playing well and wide receivers making plays, that's not going to happen. But he is no doubt a game changer and the kind of weapon in their backfield that is unlike many in the NFL. And the fact that he did what he did yesterday against the Bills defense tells you you cannot write him off against anyone, which means that you cannot write them off against anyone because Carson's playing better than we expected in a non-flashy, un-Patrick Mahomes-like way. Um, And that defense stepped up big time against Josh Allen, just thoroughly confusing one of the best quarterbacks in the league on their way to a dominating win. Which brings me to the Bills, because I am concerned now. Because we've seen this enough to be concerned. If you had asked me last week, I'd have said they were the best team in the AFC, the most complete team in the AFC. Hadn't always looked that way, but everyone has a down week here and there. Uh, That seems inexplicable. I thought that's what we'd seen from them against the Titans and Derrick Henry at the time. That's not a bad loss. Then the Jags, that was a bad loss. Now the 
ass kicking that they took yesterday, that's three losses in five games, and I can't dismiss it anymore. I don't know what the problem is, but there is obviously a problem. I feel like I do know what the problem is with the Raiders, who I think tipped into the irrelevant moving forward category yesterday with that loss to the Bengals and what felt like a really big game for both teams. The thing that bums me out about the loss is that it is likely going to end up in a lump narrative of second half swoons for the Raiders. And I think that this year is entirely different. I think that this year's letdown is because they lost an important piece to their offensive puzzle in Henry Ruggs. Not to mention their offensive-minded head coach, but really for me, it's Ruggs. Because it's the piece that they haven't had in the last few years. And I know that they had Ruggs last year, right? But they didn't trust him to go downfield consistently and open up space for their best players who are better in the short to intermediate range. And they did this year. It was clicking. I mean, we were talking about a Derek Carr rebirth and how he could be aggressive and he did have an arm. And then you take rugs out of the mix and all of a sudden everything's different. Just two passing attempts beyond 20 yards yesterday. Two. The yards per attempt in the last three games is down to 7.15. All of a sudden, we're seeing more interceptions than touchdowns, and there's talk about Carr not being as aggressive. It is all clearly, in my opinion, tied to the absence of rugs. And it bums me out that such a weird set of circumstances is ultimately going to affect the way that people who casually follow the team are going to judge people like Carr and his ability to do his job. Two other teams jump out at me this week as being particularly interesting as they kind of go through some shit. Uh, the Browns, who barely beat the Lions to improve to 6-5, and five, good for last place in the AFC North. They are currently the 10 seed in the AFC. According to 538, they have a 32% chance of making the playoffs. They have a 14% chance of winning the division. Neither of those percentages as we head into week 12, is what anyone had in mind for them back in August. So what happened? And what is continuing to happen? Because Baker Mayfield was so frustrated after the game that he refused to talk to the media. He declined the opportunity. That doesn't happen, you guys. He did talk to them on Monday. And we'll talk to Jake Trotter, who covers the team for ESPN, about all of that in just a bit. First, though, Another team that's searching for answers, the 3-7 and seven Seahawks, whose loss yesterday felt like a bit of a tipping point to me. A home loss to a divisional rival that did not have its QB1, wide receiver 1, or RB1. 538 has Seattle's chances of making the playoffs down to 4%. And considering the circumstances surrounding their offseason last year, that probably doesn't bode well for their future together. So let's welcome in Michael Sean Dugar, who covers the team for The Athletic, for more on what's going on there. Time now to break the huddle. Hello, right, let's go! Two on, two on, two. Ready? Three. Michael Sean, it is good to see you. I loved your insights into this team when we talked during the offseason, so I appreciate you coming back. After a day that really got my attention yesterday, not so much of because of what happened on the field, though that was obviously notable. But what really got my attention um, where the Seahawks were concerned was what happened off of the field afterward. Can you tell me about the post-game press conferences? 
Yeah, it was a very weird, weird day for press conferences yesterday. Pete, uh, about after about eight minutes, Pete Carroll was just like, I'm done and just walked off. Um, he felt that the, the the questions we were asking were just recurring themes. Why are you bad on third down? You know, why are you abandoning the run when it seems to be efficient? You know, why is your defense not consistent on third downs? You know, the pass rush not there. Just all the same stuff. And Pete figured, I mean, they can't possibly want to just keep asking these same things when I'm not offering anything new. So he left and then he talks to the PR guy um, and they have to hash it out. In that time, we talked to more players, talked to Jamal Adams, talked to Jordan Brooks, uh, their first round pick in 2020. And then he just comes back with a sheet of paper. Uh, I thought he was going to read like an apology, um, but he just had the the game sheet or whatever, the stat book. And he told, he said the PR guy uh, encouraged him to come back. Now, I don't know if that's entirely what happened, but he basically admitted he came back because he was like, you know, I respect you guys, the media being you guys. So, you know what? There's no reason for me to make your job harder. You got stories to write. You got stuff to do. I have to answer the questions, even if I don't have anything new, which he didn't. Uh, he talked for another like 10 minutes, had nothing new. Um, but then he uh, he was like, yeah, I have to answer these questions. And, and and that's it. And he talked a little bit about that again on his radio show this morning, just kind of doubling down on like he respects the media. Um, and I actually respected his his choice there. He didn't have to come back when he said, I'm done. That was like, yeah, no, you are. That was a, that was that was double entendre in a couple of ways. Like this, this thing is over. Um, but I do respect his decision to come back. Um, Cause that was, I text one of my friends who's a journalist too. Like it was a very human moment. You know, he was so flustered. It's like, I just can't do this. And then cooled down, thought about it and came back. Like that's something, that's a very relatable moment. Even if people don't want to see it that way right now. Well, the thing is with, and you saying that it, he's done in more ways than one. Uh, don't think that that got past me. And I definitely want to hit that. Um, but the thing about Pete Carroll is you've covered him for a while. I covered him when he was at USC. He is a very, very committed person, more than anyone I have ever met or covered in always giving an optimistic and positive message, right? Like he, and weirdly, like the fact that he's paired with Russell, who's exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. He's very like, Remember that book, The Secret, when it was I out? Read that. So it was all about it. It was kind of out when he was at USC. And it was all about like what you put out into the world is what comes back to you. And he read it, talked about it, and then kind of lived it more than anyone I've ever seen. Like he would not even entertain your negativity. If you were like, well, what if this happens? He would just move right past that question because he didn't even want to put it out into the universe. I'm not going to entertain that thought. The fact that he was as flustered, your word, after the game as he was and frustrated, visibly frustrated, like I can't stand here anymore and answer these questions and turn these negative things into positive things. It was so telling about like how bad it's actually gotten, you know, like Pete Carroll being flustered is actually newsworthy to me. Yeah, no, and I would extend um, that mindset to Bobby Wagner as well. Um, actually, he really gave a good example. He meditates now, does yoga, um, is an avid reader. So he's very much in control of like his mindset in that way. I think I asked him before this, the Saints game, I was like, yeah, no, it could get ugly here if you go like three and five or whatever. He was like, he did, he basically denied the premise of that question. He was like, but I don't want to think about that. We're going to go whatever, yep. the opposite of that. So he thought they were going to win the game and they ended up losing, but he's, Bobby is of that same like ilk of like, if I think positive, you know, I think therefore I am type, type of thing. I'm going to manifest this into the thing that I want it to yes. be. 
So you think you think that Pete Carroll's done? I don't see a logical reason to continue with Russell Wilson as the quarterback, Pete Carroll as the head coach and overseer of personnel, um, which is important to note, and general general manager John Snyder, who was under Pete Carroll in the hierarchy. Very important thing there that John does not John didn't hire Pete. Pete hired John. Uh, very very important dynamic there. I don't see a logical reason to continue with that trio in the roles that they have with the level of power they have or don't have in Russell's case, or maybe in John's case too. It just doesn't really make sense. Pete's not, he's not drafting well. Um, Clearly Schneider and his scouting department are not scouting well. Um, I can rattle off a bunch of top 100 picks going back, like in the post Legion of boom run that just not been good. Not even just like haven't been worth a top 100 pick guys. We shouldn't even be on the team. Do Uh, it. You know, uh, let's see their first round pick in 2018 was Rashad Penny. Um, he, he, uh, I remember first round pick in 2018, you know, when he made his first start yesterday, that yesterday. was his first start. That was his first career start. And he got a, he got the first carry of the game, ran for 18 yards, hurt his hammy, played one more, uh, had one more carry after that. Wait, that was his first start. All of the running back health issues that they've had there in the last few years. And they never turned to Penny to start a game. Oh, nope. My. That was okay. his first. So that's that's the 27th overall pick in the 2018 draft. And they they had they actually had the 18th pick that year and traded back. They traded with the Packers. You know who the Packers took with the 18th pick? Jair Alexander. Yeah, so like, yeah, exactly. Like I could you could do this all day. You know, in 20, 2019, they took they traded Frank Clark, got Kansas City's first pick, picked LJ Collier. Uh, he's been inactive seven out of the 10 weeks uh, this year. Uh, just been completely benched from. The rotation. It took Marquise Blair with like the 50th pick in that same draft. He started like three games or something like that. He's uh, and he's he's had like two season ending injuries in three years or something. Cody Barton, 88th pick in that same draft. He's going to go his entire career never starting uh, at the position they drafted him. This is all these guys. Lano Hill, the 95th pick in 2017. Ethan Posick, the 50 something pick in 2017. All these no one, guys. No one knows these names. That's concerning. Exactly. exactly. Some yeah. of these guys aren't even on the team anymore, like Leno. And then you just have these top 100 guys, you know, uh, Malik McDowell, the 35th pick, never paid a, played a snap for them uh, in 2017. He was their top pick. It's just all these top 100 guys. And I think that's a good framework because when you talk about rebuild, it's not just having a top 10 pick. You fill out your roster in the top 100 in total. It goes all the way to the third round. Um, so, yeah, they've had DK Metcalf in there. He's picked 64 in 2019. Um, but they've just they've in general, I wouldn't trust and to bring it back to why I think Pete's done. I don't see how you evaluate the team and think, well, let's get rid of Russell, get a bunch of assets and then hand those assets to the guys who haven't done well with the assets they've already been given. Right? I just don't see that. It makes more sense in my mind to if I'm Jody Allen, the owner of the team who also owns the Blazers. Uh, the NBA, it makes more sense to say, well, franchise quarterback, hardest position in sports to find, like quite literally, it's the hardest one. We have one. Much easier to find a coach and a GM. There's plenty of those guys out there, you know? So I think that's why I would say he's done. Do So Russell hasn't played like a franchise quarterback this year, though. What, why do, what do you, how do you, what do you attribute that to? Like how much of that is injury related? Is that related to the way that they want to run the offense up there? Like what, what's going on? 
Yeah, and I think if you uh, take it back to the second half of last season, uh, shout out to my colleague Mike Sando. He actually broke this down too. And we talked about this a little bit on our Seahawks Man to Man podcast last night. If you take the back half of 2020, that's about eight, eight or nine games, and you take the front half of 2021, it's about seven games with Russell, you get like a full season sample, which is pretty instructive, I think. And Russ has been like a, I don't know, like a, the 18th best quarterback or something, maybe even, even worse, like legitimately been very not good. The offense in general, though, has also just not been good for reasons that don't have much to do with him. You know, they don't run the ball super well to beat a team like they get good runs every once in a while. But they don't do like I think there was a game last year, for example, the Bills played the Chiefs. The Bills were like, look, we're not going to let Mahomes throw all over our heads. They played a bunch of split safety looks like we're going to dare you guys to run. And I think Clyde Edwards Hilaire had like 200 yards or something like that because they had the weaponry to beat you in whatever way they wanted to. Um, Seahawks don't have that. We've never had that. Their O line's not very good. Um, their defense has been shaky. Like, so the team has been bad in that same stretch where Russell hasn't performed well. So while Russell has had this bad stretch, and that we do have that one year sample, he also has essentially nine year sample of being good. So I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt, excuse me, until I see otherwise. Is there a general sense up there that this is? going to be it for Pete Carroll? Is that you projecting what you think is likely to happen? What's the vibe up there in Seattle? Yeah, you know, I think Pete being done is more my thing, whereas the this era being done of Russ and Pete is probably that people can kind of come to terms with this. This is done mostly because of what Russ said publicly and what we talked about last time I, I was with you. Like, but you got to remember, I wasn't I mean, you know this, but people should remember I wasn't reacting to what was reported, I did the reporting. So that means I knew ahead of time before the, everything hit the fan that it, it was bad. I had known it was bad for a few months and just was able to get a few people on the record and was able to report the thing with Mike Sando and Jason Jenks. So I've kind of felt like even last year, I was like, man, why would Russ want to keep doing this? If he doesn't have a chance to win and he wants to be Brady and Brady keeps winning, with more power than Russ has in an offense that suits him better and offensive linemen that are competent, why would Russ want to stick around for this? Um, and Russ made it clear in the offseason, if we're not competing for championships, what are we doing here? What am I doing here? And when he said that in the spring, I was like, well, probably not going to compete for one next year. So this is probably over. Um, and that was if they even, if they were seven and three instead of three and seven, I'd probably feel the same way. But the fact that they are now three and seven, I think people can look at this situation in Seattle, like, hey, Russ already ain't happy. Pete don't know. He's so upset. He doesn't even know what to do with himself. How can these guys who already had a fractured relationship fix this? The only thing they ever had in common was winning. Now they don't even have that. Do they have a fractured relationship? I, I think so. I don't think. So here's an underrated thing about what Russ did when he went on, I think, with Dan Patrick's show, his Walter Payton Man of the Year press conference, um, where not only did he air his frustrations on that Walter Payton Man of the Year thing, he did it while the moderator was actively reminding us to keep the questions about the Walter Payton Man of the Year. Like, I forget the lady's name, but she was actively like, hey, keep the questions to this. And we're just like, no. Um, but even Russ was playing along. He was like, yeah, I'll talk about other stuff because he wanted to. Right. And what he did was he violated rule number one of Pete Carroll's program, which is protect the team. That's what he did. And he knows that's the number one rule. He's been, he'd been here for nine years. So to, to, Purposely do that speaks, I, I would say, more to the fractured relationship than anything else. It's the number one rule, Pete Carroll, protect the team. 
Don't negotiate contracts in the media. Don't air your teammates out in the media. Don't do any, you know, stay off social media and don't ever let anybody know what's going on in the house. Keep the family close. Russ was like, nah, <laughs> I'm just going to let this, let this ride. You know, whether that's leaks to national media or whether that's just sanding himself on the DP show or with Jason Lockenfora on CBS, like he just went everywhere and said everything he wanted to and violated the rule. That speaks to these guys not being on the same page. So if they did move on from Pete Carroll and they, you know, went all in on Russell, we want you and you're the guy that we're choosing, do he would have to go through somewhat of a rebuild, right? With a brand new unknown at head coach um, and a lot of holes in the roster that you've pointed out. Do you think that Russell would, under those circumstances, based on what you know about him and his personality, say like, yes, I'm all in on this or do the same thing he did last off season, which is kind of a like low key. I'm going to spread the word that I want out still. I would imagine this is me projecting too. Russ hasn't told me this or anything right. to be clear, but I think that I could see a world where Russ is like, all right, if you get rid of the guy who's sinking our ship here, because Pete controls everything. Jody Allen is very much an absentee owner. Anyone who's a Portland Trailblazers fan and look at what's going on down there. You can see like, she's not in the day to day, like she shows up to games and stuff, but she's not very involved. She signs off on like big deals, like like Russell's contract and stuff like that. Not very involved. So Pete's just up here with the crown, you know, sitting there, you know, on the, one of them little uh, chairs with the two like dragon things. They're holding <laughs> there and look like a pet cat and just said like, you can't tell him nothing. He's sitting up there. Like that's that's how Pete's rocking right now. And I could see a world where if Russ is like, all right, let's get this guy out of here. Um Let's maybe get a new GM as well, um, and let's let's try to work around my skill set, both his flaws and what he's excellent at, in a way that's better suited to succeed. Because that's really where I think the Seahawks have failed too. Beyond Russ's play, which hasn't been good, like there's no way to slice that uh, any other way. But if you're gonna have an offense where you want to be more physical, you want to play good defense, and you want to run the ball. That's fine. That works. Like the that's the Browns' way of constructing an offense. I think Baker's play, notwithstanding that, that's their team building is working. I think the Packers are constructed uh, in a similar fashion. Uh, the Cowboys teams like built around having good old lines and they could do whatever the hell they want offensively. Problem is, Seahawks haven't drafted well on defense, which is why they've had to do all these trades to mask all these things. Like I applaud the aggressiveness in going after Carlos Dunlap or Quandre Diggs or Jamal Adams. But you have to do that because you didn't draft defensive ends or safeties very well, right? So, uh, and then on offense, you need an O-line. The Seahawks are probably the worst offensive line drafting team of the 2010s. Like, I would put them up against any other team. Like, you can't do those two things and then expect Russ to just, all right, play ground and pound Mark Sanchez 2009 ball. That's not really how that, that works. So I could see Russ giving the new people the benefit of the doubt to try and build around him. Now, if they can't do that, then we're here in 2023 and he's just out. But I don't think that, I don't think that that world does not exist. There's a world where Russ stays with the new people. I think I could see Russell wanting to, you know, quote unquote, win the stare down. I, he has made it very clear that he wants to, I mean, everyone says this, right. That they want to finish their career in the place that drafted them, but he's really embedded there in Seattle. And I think I could see him, not knowing him as well as you do, wanting to stay there and ride this out in Seattle. That said, though, he's not exactly a young quarterback anymore. And do they have the 
draft capital in order to actually overhaul this team quickly? Do they like, do they have what they would need in order to make those moves to become competitive in a somewhat quick fashion? Cause this team right now at three and seven, like they get the benefit of the name, you know, it's the Seahawks with Russell Wilson at quarterback and DK and Tyler Lockett. And there are a few big pieces, Bobby Wagner. And so you kind of give them the benefit of the doubt and put them in a tier that they have not proven that they belong in anymore. Yeah. They're not actually that short on assets. It feels like that. If you like read Seahawks Twitter or just like the doom and gloom, I don't think the asset shortage is the problem. They're projected to have like $55 million in cap space. According to over the cap, that's like eighth most in the league. Um, so they they don't have a first round pick, but again, that's not the only way to build a team. They have a second round pick, a third round pick, and two fourths. They have their second fourth from the Jamal Adams trade with the Jets. So I mean, that's two. That's probably going to be four picks right there in the top one fifteen ish, depending on how comp picks play out for some of these teams. Maybe one thirty ish range. That's where you fill the meat of your roster. It's the same thing that the Rams are essentially doing. Prior to the Von Miller trade, the Rams decided, okay, the back end of the first round, there's not a ton of value. But in the second, third, and fourth rounds, we can find Cooper Cups and Gerald Everett's and you know some other uh, guys that did, I think Tyler Higby maybe as well. Just guys that they found in that range. You can build there. You got money in cap space. You can build. I just don't think at this point it's very logical to think that if you give that money in cap space to a Pete Carroll and John Schneider led organization, right, you are going to come back with anything other than disappointment. What happened? How did this happen? to Pete Carroll because he has shown in the past that he knows how to build a roster. You know, he, he did it at USC where he's in charge of recruiting and he did a great job at identifying the players that should be recruited. Um, obviously it's different, right? When you have your pick of everybody as opposed to a draft, but you have to be able to identify the guys that are going to hit and the guys that aren't. And then he had success at the beginning there in Seattle. Like, was that not all, him? Did we give him too much credit as a talent evaluator in the beginning? I'm trying to wrap my brain around how this went completely awry in that department. Yeah, that might be one of the stories I do this week. But the the Cliff Notes version is, I think that, yeah, we, we gave a lot of credit to Pete and John and kind of whiffed on some of the other people who were important, like Scott McLuhan was in that uh that room, um, you know, I think Jim Nagy, who runs the Senior Bowl now, was on on their staff for a little bit, like in some of those earlier years when they were um, drafting really well. So there's other pieces, you know, in there that aren't there anymore. Not to say that Scott and Jim, but those are those are like two good examples of people who were in the rooms. They were doing well. They're not in the room, not doing well. Right. That's not a relevant information, I would say. And also the draft is a little bit of luck, too. They found Cam Cam Chance in the fifth round, Richard Sherman in the fifth round. Like yeah. It's not that they, they, were, they it, were trying to get them in the fifth round. Right. right. Yeah. There's a little bit of that. I, I also think that um, on a more like macro level, they, they there was a market inefficiency that they were exploiting, uh, particularly with the size of cornerbacks. Like they were the only team looking for Brandon Browners and Shermans really at the time. And then when they had that success playing cover three long arm guys, okay, well, everyone was like, let's just draft long corners. I mean, look at this last 2021 draft. The corners were huge that were all, you know, Sertans and JC Horns and uh, Stokes and all these other, Caleb, uh, whatever his, uh, the Virginia Tech guy with the bad back, like all of Farley, I think is his name. All of these guys, oh, yeah, the yeah. corners were big. Yeah. The corners were all like averaging six, one at the top of the draft. Look at all the receivers were getting smaller. It was like Devontae Smiths and Jalen Waddles, not DKs and AJ Browns, right? So 
I think that part he couldn't he, they can't exploit that anymore. Now everyone's looking for big corners, uh, you know, the Colts and the Bills and teams that have hired people from the Seahawks specifically and built good rosters. That's why I named those two teams. So it's a combination of a bunch of things, losing some scouting people, um, just t- taking some risks where they shouldn't have. But I think specifically defensively, um, because they've drafted just one Pro Bowl defender since Bobby Wagner in 2012, and that's Shaquille Griffin. Um, he was the 90th pick in the 2017 draft. That And he was a corner. I think that in defense, they were trying to exploit something that can't be exploited anymore. The rest of the league caught up. and was like, oh, let's do what Seattle's doing. 31 people are doing what you're doing, then it's not the, the, the best thing since sliced bread anymore. And I think the Rams might run into that same issue. Like they're the only one who doesn't believe in drafting in the back end of the first round. If yeah. like four other teams start believing that, then it's no longer this genius strategy and they're going to have to pivot. Yep. It changes everything when, when you're getting competition for the thing that is your thing. So in the short term future for the Seahawks, what kinds of adjustments do you think that they will make? I mean, it appears that at the very moment that we're speaking that they don't necessarily have the answers. Um, but Russell Wilson, I don't know how much the finger is an issue, whether you move him back under center. I mean, I, are there any answers that you think would be the right answers in the short term in terms of salvaging as much of the season as you possibly can? Yeah, I think their defensive performance may be an outlier, um, just at least from yesterday, just because they were playing at outside cornerbacks, Sidney Jones and Bless Austin. And if you don't know who those guys are, that's fine. Most people don't either, and there's a reason for that. Those two... So, like, these are just two dudes they picked up off the scrap heap right before the season, and these guys were starting in a game in week 11. So that's a problem. And Seattle's defense made a turn earlier in the year, largely because they found two guys who can cover on the outside. DJ Reed, Trey Brown. Trey injured his knee yesterday. I think DJ has a groin injury and a knee injury. So he's out. You put two guys who can't cover on the field, you, you can get carved up by anybody. Colt McCoy, be damned. Two guys who can't cover is a problem. So I, I would imagine their defense might get better if DJ Reed's back next week against Washington and Trey Brown's back at some point. Uh, so there's, there is some hope on the defensive side of the ball. Offense, I've run out of hope. Right, you can. I've, I've searched for it. I tried to find some silver lining in the numbers. I think that they've hit the extreme of something that has been coming for a while. Seattle's offense has lived uh, on basically. They're almost like a basketball team that only takes threes and shoots layups. They like the Houston Rockets under Mike D'Antoni. And what teams have decided to cover them as like, hey, you're gonna shoot these mid range jumpers. You're gonna have to to beat us. And the Seahawks aren't equipped to do that. Will they score 13 or zero points every week? No. But I think, like I said, this is the extreme version of, of that. You know, the Rockets still won a lot of games, but when it came down to crunch time, it's like, well, you, there's a whole uh, part of the floor you're not attacking. Same thing with the Seahawks. There's an entire part of the field you're not attacking because of your, your strategy. So until you attack it, you're going to continue to struggle. And I don't see that changing uh, anytime soon, at least not in this season. Just fascinating. And as you mentioned, Washington up next, and that is a Monday night game. So all of America will be watching for better. I would encourage owners. America to do something else. <laughs> oh, <laughs> There's no. got to be something else. Uh, it's so it's such a bad product. Uh, the Seahawks have a huge fan base overseas, like London and, and France and stuff like that, and Brazil and stuff, Germany. I encourage the people that I know that I talk, I'd be like, hey, guys, don't stay. Because they have to stay up to like four or five in the morning for those primetime games to watch that. And it's just like. At this point, just just watch, just read me, just read me the next morning. You don't really don't even got to watch <laughs> that stuff live, man. It's just not, I guess I would encourage America to do something else there 
uh, unless you're just a really Tape big it fan. In case of, it turns out to be something worth watching, but you know, yeah, it's it's not. I can imagine that just not being pretty for for either side. I don't think Washington's very good either. So it's just yeah, it's it's not good over here. It's it's doom and gloom in Seattle, and I don't think we're overselling that because once you add the context, like we just talked about, it's, it's very bad with not a lot of options for it to get better very quickly. Michael, Sean, you're the best. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me. The game of basketball has taken over the world. Hi, this is Fran Fraschella, and my podcast, The World of Basketball, is back for season two. Each and every week, I bring my many years of coaching and scouting around the world into conversations with players, coaches, and executives who give the game its international flair. Be sure to rate, subscribe, and review. Check out World of Basketball wherever you get your podcasts and on the SXM app. Bit of a theme today, underperforming teams whose frustrations are starting to rise to the surface. Spoke with Michael Sean Dugar, who covers the Seahawks beat. And I now welcome in Jake Trotter, who covers the Browns for ESPN. Jake, thank you so much. I know today has been very busy, so I very much appreciate you taking the time. And man, do I have a ton of questions about the team that you cover. Yeah, let's go, Lindsay. A lot has happened in the last 24 hours. Okay, let me start with let me start with this. What happened after the game? Yeah, I mean, I actually go go to the fourth quarter. So the Browns cannot put the lines away, and Baker Mayfield is missing some passes, and then he throws an in, uh, an interception intended, I think, for David and Joku. And at that point, it looks like the Lions might win the game. And you just start hear you start hearing boos throughout First Energy Stadium. And I don't know before this game if I'd ever seen or heard Baker Mayfield be booed uh, by, by the home fans. Uh, going back to at least when I started covering the team in 2019. So it, it was noticeable and it happened more than once. And then after the game, uh, you know, Baker Mayfield takes a knee, they win 13, 10, and he just beeline straight to uh, the locker room. Maybe beelines the wrong word. He limped his way to the locker room and doesn't do any post-game media, which he, that had not been the case uh, in his entire NFL career that he'd skip media after a game. So uh, to his credit, he did do a zoom call uh, today and just said that, you know, wanted to let the frustration uh, wash away a little bit, you know, didn't want to get too emotional about some things he might say. And, you know, he, he took every question, answered every question, uh, you know, was asked. To, I asked the question actually about, you know, the fans booing him. Uh, you know, he said he does not care. And those are probably the same fans making noise when they're trying to operate an offense. So but I mean, it's a little anger in that answer, little anger in that answer, Jake. I don't know. I read that. Uh, I read that quote and I thought, well, that it might not have been the smartest. Like if he wanted to take a beat so that his emotions wouldn't get the best of him, he might've let them leak out in that particular answer. Cause fighting with the fans is not usually a smart approach. Yeah. And Baker's an emotional guy. I mean, I think that's why he was the number one pick people. People love that emotion when he was coming out of Oklahoma and, and his rookie season. And even last year when they went to the playoffs. So yeah, I mean, he, he, if it, if it sounded like he cared, uh, reading the, the, what he said, go watch what, go watch, uh, the way he said it. Uh, so it was one of the spicier Baker Mayfield media sessions, uh, that I've seen in a while. And it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens these next two games. Cause they're either going to have a chance to win the AFC North, uh, after these two games or their season is going to be over. And then, you know, obviously things could, could derail from there. Yeah, it's I mean, it's crazy. And again, there are so many directions we could go on here because it's it's on the one hand, it's just nuts that this is what we're even talking about based on the expectations coming into the season, the way that the roster is constructed, 
Uh, this season has completely caught me off guard as far as the Cleveland Browns are concerned, but let's go back to the Baker thing for just a second. Where does his frustration lie primarily as you know, based on what the way you understand it anyway, because he did say in today's press conference, what, right. That he acknowledged that he played like shit was mad at himself. Is he also mad at circumstances? Is he mad at something outside of himself and the position that he's being put in? Or is it just that he's frustrating, frustrated with himself and his own play? Well, this was a, a huge season for Baker coming in. And they had, you know, he just led the Browns to their first playoff victory, you know, in, in three decades, uh, led them to the playoffs for the first time since, since 2002, the franchise, and played really well. I mean, people forget how well Baker Mayfield played from like week six on last year, from week seven to week 15 in terms of QBR, only Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes had better QBR ratings. He, he played really well in that Pittsburgh Steelers playoff road win where they didn't even, didn't even have Kevin Stefanski there. And so coming into 2021, he was extension eligible. They were not able to forget, not able to get a deal done. The Browns never really uh, approached Mayfield's camp about it. And so uh, there was a lot of money on the line. Reputation was on the line. There was a lot on the line this season. And then week two, he tears his labrum on his non-throwing shoulder. And I think the frustrating the frustration really stems from the fact that he's hurt. And to some degree, that is affecting how well he can play. And he's just not playing well. And now he's dealing with multiple injuries. And you're just like, how is he going to come out of this? And it's just hard to see because they haven't given him really any kind of rest except for that, that Denver Broncos game uh, a few weeks ago on Thursday night. Uh, it's just hard to see how this turns around at this point. And, you know, we're not talking about just about the, the, the Browns not making the playoffs and, and underachieving, which I think is looking more and more likely at this point. But, you know, we don't even know if Baker Mayfield is going to be the long-term answer at quarterback for the Browns anymore. I think that's really going to be a question on the table Going into next offseason, you know, 2022 might be make or break best case scenario for for that situation. So uh, it's it's you can understand why he is frustrated. And I think it just stems from the fact he's hurt. He's in pain and he's playing uh, not not up to his capability. It it is an interesting point because you don't want to put something on tape when you're looking for a brand new contract, especially how expensive quarterback contracts are. The Browns were already in a tough position of trying to figure out whether or not he was a franchise guy and worth hanging their hat on for the, uh, you know, next five years or something like that, especially, especially since they do have a really good roster this year. So there are going to be a lot of people that look at this and say, well, Baker, we gave you this. And if you can't win with this, then we're going to go find roll the dice, you know, with somebody who might end up being worse, but might actually take us where we want to go considering all that we're offering you um, in terms of, of, you know, personnel pieces around you. How much do you think based on uh, what we're seeing from Baker is tied to the injury this year? And how much do you think that he could perform at a totally different level if he wasn't injured? Yeah. I mean, there's varying opinions on this and I, I can't say for sure, you know, to what extent the injuries are impacting him, but they are in, they're having a huge impact. I mean, you, we, we can argue about how good, you know, Baker Mayfield is or isn't. I mean, we've seen that debate, you know, uh, uh happen, uh, you know, since he entered the league. Right. And, but we did see him last year play at a pretty high level. I mean, he was a fringy top 10 quarterback in the NFL the second half of the season last year. We saw him as a rookie, uh, you know, almost win, you know, NFL rookie offensive rookie of the year, break the 
rookie record for touchdown passes. And I, and I think, you know, the disappointment and, and the frustration also stems from, and why I thought Baker was going to have a big year this season. This was the first off season. Lindsay didn't have a new offensive coordinator, a new head coach, a new playbook to learn, uh, new schemes, um, new teammates. I mean, they had all 11 starters back and not just the starters, but like their hot five, six, seven backups uh, were back off last season as well. And, you know, he he was like the third quarterback in NFL history to play for four different head coaches, his first three seasons in the league. So you could kind of say, okay, like, I think some of his struggles are understandable um, because he was put in some really tough situations. His first few years in the league, it finally looked like he had a scheme that matched his skill set, a partnership with Kevin Stefanski that was really going to thrive going forward. Uh, the best offensive line in football, arguably, you know, two uh, phenomenal running backs, but maybe the best running game in the NFL, you know, some, some, some highly paid wide receivers and Jarvis Landry and Odell who's not here anymore. Uh, we can get into that whole situation, which I think is a factor in all of this as well. And so I think everybody thought he was going to have a big year. And then all of this stuff was going to take care of itself, extension and, and the, the money and all that. That's something he said during training camp. And I thought in the Kansas city game, even though they didn't win, he played pretty well. He looked like 2020 Baker to me. And then since that labrum injury, he's just looked like, you know, a, a, a less version of, of himself. I mean, it, this season really reminds me of 2019 when they were six and 10. Baker could not get anything going. And, uh, you know, they had a lot of drama off the field as well. Oh, and it's crazy to even say that, considering, again, the way that the roster is constructed, what we went through in the offseason, when when they were drafting, they were the team in the draft that had like no holes to fill. So they could just sit there and wait for the best available to land in their lap and just collect talent. And it looked like they won the draft. It looked like they won the off season. I mean, this team had everything that they needed going into the year. I think the Odell point is very, very interesting. Coupled with the fact that Baker played so well down the stretch when he did not have Odell. And we had the conversation last year around the league of, you know, whether or not Baker was better off without Odell, whether the Browns were better off without Odell. And then there was the whole component of like, well, that's a silly thing to say because Odell is so good. And then the stuff blew up with Odell this year and they came out in that first game after Odell left, they looked very similar to the way that they looked down the stretch last year. And I thought, oh my gosh, it is that. And then since then it has appeared to not be that. What, what do you make of the Odell factor in all of this? Like, why did it not work with him? And why did in so many games, they actually look better without him? Yeah. So I think that last year, I, I, I and I wrote this at the time, right after the Odell injury, I didn't think that the Browns were necessarily going to be better off because the thing about Odell, whether he's catching passes or not, he just has a lot of gravity on the field and that creates running lanes for Nick Chubb. That creates opportunities in the passing game for the tight ends, for Jarvis Landry. But I did actually think that Baker was going to play better without Odell. And the reason I, I wrote it at the time, and it certainly, I think, proved to be the case, was that he Baker and Odell just never were able to find a chemistry together. And, uh, you know, I wrote about it after the Odell split uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know, you know, Baker couldn't get Odell the ball, right? We all saw that, but Odell also couldn't get to the spots that Baker needed him to be at. What and is that? What do you mean by that? I think, I think with some of the route running, um, and I don't know how prevalent it was necessarily this year compared to 2019, but you know, there were some occasions in 2019 where, you know, Odell just ran a, a route that Baker was not expecting. And I don't want to say he ran the wrong route, but 
just not the route that Baker was expecting. How can you possibly run a route that the quarterback's not expecting? Like there's a play that's called, right? Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the play that, that sticks out, I think a lot, uh, to a lot of people was, um, 2019 against the Denver Broncos, the Browns are two and five. Their season is, is basically like it, like it is now it's hanging in the balance. They've got fourth and four. Um, that was the game that, you know, Baker had, uh, different, uh, you know, facial, uh, he had a mustache and beard and then he was clean shaven. Uh, and, and Odell had the, the Joker cleats on and had to, you know, take them off at halftime or risk being suspended in the second half. I mean, this type of stuff was happening like every week in 2019. And so fourth and four, the play, uh, as, as it's been explained to me, uh, by multiple people was for Odell and Jarvis to cross pass on the middle of the field and kind of run a rub rub concept to free one of them open. And you go back and watch the play, you know, Odell runs straight down the field and he's open, but you know, Baker didn't have the confidence to throw it to him. Cause I, I you know, my educated, you know, uh, analysis of it is that he didn't really know where Odell was going to go from there. And Baker got killed on all those shows, you know, the next day, like, how could you not throw Odell the ball in that particular moment? Um, and I, I, you know, I, I don't want to like assess blame to Baker or, or Odell because I, I think maybe if it was a different quarterback, maybe that quarterback would have gotten Odell the ball there. Maybe they would have been able to see that, um, that opening and, and been able to change the route, you know, on the fly by just looking at one another, which Baker has that kind of rapport with somebody like Jarvis Landry, but they ended up, you know, Baker ended up throwing an incompletion on that play. They dropped the two and six. And, um, it was just like that a lot in 2019. And, um, you know, maybe it's not running, running the right, uh, or, or the, the, the route that Baker thought, uh, you know, he was going to run it maybe like in the Minnesota game earlier this year, that was the first play that Odell senior posted on that video, or that was uh, on the video that he posted. Um, you know, Baker has this, you know, woeful underthrow Odell's streaking into the end zone. And, you know, on that particular play, they just read the safety coverage differently. And Baker thought Odell was going to, you know, uh, stop his route short and Odell, you know, saw nothing but green turf in front of him and kept running. And, um, that, that's just a situation where like these two guys just couldn't get on the same page. And, uh, that, that is why I think one reason why Baker was just better because he, you know, Odell was not in his head. He was, going through his progressions, um, you know, was, was on time with the throws and just kind of reading the defense and not worrying about the get, you know, getting the ball with, uh, to one particular player, because Odell, in addition to having gravity on the field, has a lot of gravity off the field as well. And so I, I, you know, I was curious to see how it was going to go this season. And then after the Odell split, um, and you're right, it looked like it was going to be like 2020 again in that Cincinnati game, but, um, Baker's just not played, uh, well, since regardless of the the the, uh, the whole Odell situation, and and the one thing um, that I think Browns fans should be worried about is Odell is really popular in that locker room. You know, there's there's this like weird narrative out there that like he's a bad teammate and like that nobody likes him, and it's just not true, not the case at all. And um, I think a lot of those players, some of them even admitted it. You know, to us, like we don't really understand what's going on. Like we don't get why he's leaving. Um, and and they you know, do. We want to, and we want him back. You know, that, that was something that John Johnson, the third said, we want, ba- we want Odell back in the locker room, even after the video had posted. So, um, it is kind of a problematic situation going forward because, um, you know, you have to wonder if some of those players are, you know, what, what, what's going on here? Like, why can't we get the offense going? Because we have all these players, as you mentioned earlier, all these pro bowl running backs and this offensive line and, you know, our quarterback's just not playing well. And that feels like an indictment on Baker. I'm sure that Baker's taking a lot of that on too, because it feels like he has 
friends in the locker room, at least outwardly, people are supporting him. But if they're also supporting Odell after Odell, at least his dad, is so publicly attacking Baker and pointing the finger at Baker, then I I think if I were Baker, I would feel like I didn't have true allies in the locker room if they were supporting both of us. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. And again, like I I haven't any and I don't think this is necessarily like a like we have a Baker side in the locker room and a Odell side in the locker room. I'm not saying that it's become a divisive issue that way um, where we have factions now. But I do think that, you know, listen, if, if a guy that a lot of players on that team look up to is basically saying, you know, this quarterback is trash. I think, you know, that's basically what his dad was saying. And and Odell never publicly um, denounced those comments still. then I, then I think that that could leave an impression with a lot of guys. And so Baker's feeling all of that. And, and the other part of this, you know, Baker is the unequivocal tone setter and leader of this team. And this was another problem in 2019 when they were such a disappointment. Baker was not playing well. And it's hard to be that guy, like the tone setter, the guy that everybody's rallying around when you're not playing well. And that's happening again now. You can just kind of feel it. And I think that um, that, that, that's difficult for Baker because they really rely on him to be, uh, you know, that vo- not just the, the quiet leader, but the vocal leader, you know, on the field, in, in the locker room. And, you know, when you have an eight point, whatever QBR against the Detroit lions, you know, it's hard to be that guy. I mean, it would be hard for anybody. So here's where I'm stuck a little bit. Like if, if OBJ is running the wrong route, right. Mm-hmm. And then everyone else on the offense knows what the play is called. And then when you go into a meeting, you kind of know, they know, we don't know at home, but they know where the blame should be affixed, right? Like you were supposed to run that route. You didn't run that route. The fact that they still want him back, the fact that he is getting so much support from the locker room, the fact that it didn't feel like there were people that were coming out and kind of saying like, yeah, but like, I like him. He's a good guy, but I get it, you know? then maybe that makes me feel like that wasn't actually happening as much as we've kind of heard. I, I'm trying to figure out, cause that, that seems like an obvious, like there's one guy that's right. And there's one guy that's wrong. And sometimes like the situation that you described where you read the safety differently, right? Like that's a little bit of a gray area. Is it mostly gray area? I would say it's mostly been gray area this year. I would say it was mostly a gray issue this year. I would say in 2019, especially, it was not so gray at times. And there's probably, I mean, in Baker and Odell, I mean, they spent, it's the reason they spent so much time together this offseason. You know, Odell flew to Austin, Texas. Um, you know, they went to Montana together during Labor Day weekend, uh, right before the season started. I mean, you'd go to training camp and Odell wasn't cleared yet. And they'd be off to the side throwing route after route after route so they could get on the same page. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that, uh, in every case, it was Odell's fault, or in every case, it was Baker's fault. They just never saw the game the same way. And I, I think that led to um, a lot of the chemistry issues. And, you know, if you're an offensive lineman, you don't know what route's being run. You know, if you're a defensive back, you don't know what's going on, I think, as much. It's not like they are going through all of this, you know, as a team every single week. And it's a little bit, I think, segmented to some degree uh, when you're evaluating, you know, what went wrong in a particular, you know, area of the game. What, where does Jarvis? How does he fit into all of this? Because I've thought about him a number of times as Odell's best friend, then sitting on the bench next to Baker. Feels like he's been put in kind of an awkward position. Yeah, kind of. Um, you know, he's been, you know, he, had, he didn't talk for a while after the Odell thing. He he spoke at a 
um, at a Thanksgiving food drive last week for the first time and said, you know, it, it, it stings that, you know, Odell's not here anymore. It hurts. And, you know, wishes it, it didn't go that way. And he also, you know, somebody asked him about his injuries. He's dealing with a knee injury. And the way he answered it was kind of curious. He said, well, you know, I'm not getting the ball either. Um, which I thought was an interesting way to answer that question. And, uh, you know, Jarvis, uh, has a lot of respect in that locker room, especially from Baker. You know, I, I Jarvis is a guy that that is I th- I thought was going to be really important after the Odell split because he had to be the glue that kind of kept this together. Um, and yeah, he's he's not getting the ball either. I mean, he scored his second touchdown of the season on a on a busted running you know trick play on on Sunday. So um, you know, they, I think they made more of a. Uh, an effort to get him the ball on Sunday, but second series, you know, Baker overthrows him and, and it's intercepted. And, uh, you know, it's just been a lot of that. Day. It wasn't lost on me that after he made the comment about him not getting the ball, the way he got the ball was they took Baker out of the equation and put him in a direct snap situation. Yeah. I mean, they, they, and they, they've done that before, you know, they've had Jarvis throw, throw some passes before they've had Jarvis, you know, catch passes from, you know, wide receivers. Yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, they, they, they definitely were trying to get Jarvis the, the ball on Sunday. And even after all that, you know, it really didn't add to a lot of production because they cannot get the passing game going. And if you're a receiver um, right now, the Browns, you're just not going to touch the ball very often. And part of it is they run a lot of three tight end sets. You know, they're going to run the ball with Chubb and Kareem up when he gets back uh, Sunday night. Um, and you do a lot of blocking. Um, so it, it can, it can get frustrating if you're hurt and you're not getting the ball very often and you're blocking a lot. Why are they not turning to Case Keenum, considering the way that Baker's playing? Yeah, I mean, it, it, and forget even how Baker's playing, like how ba- how hurt Baker is. Totally. They, just have not, they have not. The two being tied together, I think we. Obviously, obviously. And I mean, I asked Kevin Stefanski today, like every way I could ask it, you know, um, given how clearly limited Baker is, uh, do you guys feel like you can score enough points to win some of these games down the stretch? They've only scored more than 17 points once since October 10th. Like, it's sort of amazing they're six and five right now, uh, given how um, inefficient they've been offensively. And, you know, I asked asked Kevin, you know, you know, Baker statistically was maybe the best play action rollout quarterback in the NFL last year. And, And, you know, can you not do some of that? Because he's hobbling around. He can't really run a play action rollout with a quarterback that, you know, has a hard time walking, much less sprinting. Uh, so, um, but they're, they are not at any point since the Thursday night game, have they given consideration to, to go in with case, uh, including on Sunday. I mean, at one point case Keenum was warming up and you thought, okay, like, you know, they're going to make a move here. Baker's really hobbling around. And, and Stefanski said afterward, I didn't even know that case was warming up. And so um, nothing is going to change. They're not going to case Keenum. People keep asking, you know, How when did they're going to not know case was warming up. Who told him to warm up? I don't know. I don't know if case took it upon himself or, uh, you know, maybe the offensive coordinator, uh, or somebody, or maybe case just saw Baker limping and said, maybe I need to get ready just in, just in, in case. case, you know, case is a veteran. So, you know, he, he was warming up at one point and, but it never got to that, never got close to them considering making a change. What does your gut tell you? about the future at quarterback for the Browns. What needs to happen the rest of the way out? Are they cl- do you feel like they're like could be swayed either way at this point? Do you feel like they've probably already made a decision? What do you think is most likely to happen? 
okay, so I think that anything that happens in 2020, 2021, the rest of this season is probably not going to have that much of an impact on what decision they make hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, this is our guy. This is not our guy. I think that this is going to be a can that gets kicked down the road. And could they bring in another quarter, like a Ryan Tannehill? T- Everybody acts like finding a Ryan Tannehill is easy, by the way. Um, you know, a guy that you can just immediately, you know, rehabilitate into a, a, a top tier quarterback. Right. Uh, could they draft a quarterback? I mean, I, I think those are conversations they're probably going to have. Um, but I, I don't think that they're going to just say Baker's not our guy after this season, given how injured he's been and given how well he played the season before. So I imagine that that 2022 is going to be, he's under contract the next season. You're going to be paying him 18 million, adult, 18 million a year anyway, uh, because they already picked up his fifth year option. So it kind of feels like, uh, this is just going to linger. And then 2022, whatever happens is going to tell us whether Baker is going to be here in the long term or whether that's going to be the final season for him as the, the starting quarterback of the Browns. So just go into the year that year and let it be a lame duck, prove it type of year for Baker Mayfield and see how it goes. It feels like that's where we're headed at, at this point. All right, Jake, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yep. Thanks, Lindsay. Good stuff there from Jake and earlier from Michael, Sean, and a big thank you to both of them who can be found on Twitter at Jake underscore Trotter and Mike Dugar. That is D-U-G-A-R. Do you think that Pete would come back to SC if things did wrap up for him there in Seattle this year? Do you think that SC would bring him back considering the way things ended? I wonder if that would be a possibility. Anyway, Michael Sean mentioned Mike Sando several times in our conversation, and he is coincidentally going to be my guest on Wednesday. He wrote a really interesting piece about quarterback support for The Athletic last week. And by support, I mean like pieces around him, stuff like that, not like support like booing fans. (laughs) And so I'm interested to talk to him about what he found in doing uh, the research for that piece. And that'll be up on Wednesday. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, wherever you get your podcasts. The NFL Roadshow is also available on the SXM app. Free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcasts. For video clips of the show and more, follow me on Twitter, Lindsay underscore Rhodes. I'm also on Instagram, Lindsay Rhodes NFL. The NFL Roadshow is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network. The executive producer is Andrew Emmer. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. And a special thanks to SiriusXM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. We'll see you on Wednesday. Have a good one, guys. SiriusXM Podcasts.